Good morning. Welcome. Want to uh, mention our Wednesday night meeting again. We will be resuming on Wednesday, the 13th of November. And we believe those are going to be powerful times where we get to receive from God's word and God's spirit. And would encourage you to reconnect with that. We had wonderful times over the years with those meetings and we believe that's going to continue. So, I need to be on my best behaviour this morning because my mum and dad are here. And my brother and my sister-in-law. Can you stand? Let's welcome them. Stand, yeah. Okay. And also Pastor Peter and the Bishop from India, please stand. Let's welcome them. Amen. Wonderful. Could you just bow your heads with me as we pray over today's message? Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will speak into our hearts and lives this morning in a fresh way, that our understanding will be opened, and that as a result of what we hear today, our lives will be changed forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read to you from... The book of Romans chapter 5, from verse 18 through to verse, sorry, from verse, yes, from verse 18 through to verse 21. You remember that uh, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor John began a series on the book of Romans, so I'm picking up there on the theme of grace, and this morning I want to speak to you on the subject of the grace revolution, the grace revolution. And Paul writes here in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, And I'm reading from the uh, New King James Version, I believe, here. It says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift comes to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience... Many will be made sinners, or many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense and the sin might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Are you happy for that this morning? That the scripture says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that... As sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that as sin reigned in death, so grace might reign through Jesus Christ our Lord. As I said at the beginning, I want to speak to you this morning on the grace revolution. And the reason I've titled the message that way is because I believe we need to revisit this whole area of the doctrine of grace and the Christian gospel in a fresh way. Because I fear that we, we very easily go back into our old ways. Anyone here struggle with their old ways? Anyone here struggle with habits that you've been trying to break for a long time and you still can't break them? You know... It's easy to pretend that we are spiritual, that we are 
that somehow we've arrived in our Christian culture. But you know, God doesn't want us to pretend. God wants us to be real. Amen? And many times we think that if as Christians we show vulnerability, if as Christians we show weakness and we show that we struggle with things, then somehow that will affect our witness to non-Christians. But I don't believe that whatsoever. I believe the more honest and authentic and vulnerable we are, the more attractive the gospel becomes to those outside. You see, I don't like religion. I don't like Christian religion. I know that when Jesus came into this world, he didn't come to bring us some mere moral philosophy. He didn't come to bring a religion. He came to change our lives. In fact, he says himself in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 10, verse 10, he says of the devil, the thief, calls him the thief, he says the thief comes to steal, he comes to kill and destroy. I've come that you might have life and that you might have life in all its fullness. So he never said, I've come to bring religion. He says, I've come to bring life. Many times when we first hear the gospel, there is a, an immediate change that we notice in our lives. In fact, you can't be touched by the grace of God and in some way not be changed. But for many of us, as the Christian life begins, it almost seems as if the power that we experienced at the beginning seems to diminish. And if we're honest, sometimes, and this may apply to one of you here today, sometimes the Christian life can become more of a burden than a joy. Sometimes, even though we have the scriptures before our eyes that talk about the fact that Jesus has set us free, that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free, that we're called to be free, that we're in the grace of God. There's no condemnation. In our minds, we know that, but in our hearts, we don't feel that. And in our lives, we don't see that. And so there is a disconnect between what we believe and what we see. In those times, we usually do one of two things. Some just say, I can't do this no more. And they leave the Christian faith altogether. And others, well, we start pretending. We start wearing the mask. We start putting on the act. You know? Maybe all hell is breaking loose around our life. This morning we had a fight with our family. We're struggling on all levels and we get to church and someone says to us, Hey brother, hey sister, how you doing? Oh, praise God. I'm more than a conqueror. Through him that loved us, hallelujah. And then you get out of the church and your face sinks again and you're like, I can't maintain this double life I'm living. You know, the scripture says a double-minded person is unstable in all his ways. And when I talk about this grace revolution, if the Christian life begins with grace and we come to God on the basis of grace, that we cannot continue on the basis of works and our performance. These two things are mutually contradictory. They, are, they, cannot, they do not exist. They cannot exist together. In fact, in this very same book, the Apostle Paul says, if it is of grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And he says, and if it is of works, then it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer works. And so, the gospel which should mean good news, actually for many people, becomes bad news. 
becomes bad news in their day-to-day experience. And there is an element of truth in what I've said, because in one sense, if you're going to appreciate what the gospel has to say, you have to know the bad news before you know the good news. Because how is it good news unless it's good news about some bad situation that you know about? Amen? Who's been to the doctor recently? I went to the doctor just last week. I was telling him about some symptoms I was having. And, you know, a good doctor, before he prescribes, what will he do? He will diagnose. Because if you don't know what's wrong, how will you even be open to the fact that you need a solution? Now, in the Bible, God is the ultimate doctor. God is the ultimate physician. And he has diagnosed... Every one of us. He has made a declaration over the entire human race. You may not like it. You may not agree with it. But if Jesus is who he claims to be and the Bible is true, then it is true. And I would suggest the evidence shows it to be true. And it's bad news. It's very bad news. It's the equivalent of me going to my doctor and the doctor telling me, Basically, you have a terminal condition. People, some people get afraid of flying, don't they? I always wonder why they call the, the exit point a terminal. It just doesn't really help release the confidence, does it, at the airport? don't know why I said that, but anyway. Maybe someone needs to be set free from fear of flying this morning. And the doctor turns to you. And you're looking for the doctor to provide a solution, but the doctor says you have a terminal condition, maybe it's it's cancer, maybe some other disease, and you have a limited time left on this earth. And people say, now that's horrendous. That could be the worst thing that could ever happen to me in my life, and I understand why you would say that. But listen to me this morning. Even if you haven't been to the doctor and had that diagnosis, every one of us here in this room are terminal. No one is getting out of this alive. No one gets out alive. The statistic, one in one, die. (laughs) Only two things are certain in life. Death and taxes. And you business people know that, eh? (laughs) And God puts it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He says, all have sinned and come short of God's standard. And it talks about the fact that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the Bible talks about our life on this earth being like a mist that comes for a little while and then vanishes. But the good news is, is that one who comes, whose name is the Redeemer, whose name is the Saviour, whose name is the living Son of God, and he says this, he says, I am the resurrection and the life, He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. I'm not looking for the undertaker. I'm looking for the upper taker. And the way God uses to diagnose in the Bible is something called the law. How many heard of the law? You've heard of the Ten Commandments. Well, the Ten Commandments aren't just Ten Commandments. In the Old Testament, there were 613 of those things. 613. And God said, if you want to 
deal with me on the basis, if you want to transact with me on the basis of whether you can be good enough in yourself, then try and keep all these laws, and if you can do it perfectly, then you're righteous. Do you know what the problem is? No one can do it. I can't do it, and you can't do it. So how is it then that as Christians, we receive the grace of God, we receive the free and power of the gospel, and then somehow we find ourselves trying to impress God with our performance? Do you know when the Bible says you're free, it really does mean that you're free. Did you hear what I said? I looked it up in the New Testament where it says freedom, the word means free. And in the Old Testament, surprise, surprise, kesabris, the Hebrew word also means free. And so Christianity should feel like what we sang, my chains fell off, not, I better not mess up. Oh God, I didn't read my Bible this morning, please don't punish me. Do you know that God's not angry with you? Do you know as a believer in Christ, the blood of Christ that was shed is sufficient. He has irrevocably and forever turned away his judgment from your life because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The final thing Jesus said on the cross was, not I am finished. We sang it. He said, it is finished. And in the Greek, it's one word, tatalastai, which they would stamp on bills that were paid. So how can we try and pay a debt to God by our performance? when the debt has already been paid. You say, am I really free? Yes, you're really free. You say, surely I'm only free to do good. Well, what kind of freedom is that? Only free to do good. Paul says, you're free, now use, use your freedom for good. Don't use it as an opportunity to indulge your sinful nature. So if you're free, you're free. You can choose to read your Bible. You can choose not to read your Bible. You can choose to worship God. You can choose not to worship God. You can choose to come to church. You can choose not to come to church. And whether you do or you don't, God's love for you remains the same. Amen. I read an amazing story about Abraham Lincoln. And, you know, he was a pioneer in the abolition of the slave trade. And there is a story of Abraham Lincoln going to a slave market. And there was an African slave girl there. And you could see that she'd been battered and bruised, going from one master to another. And here she was on sale again. And Abraham Lincoln paid the price for her freedom. And so when she was released from her shackles, Abraham Lincoln walked away. And she's like, what's going on? Why, he's paid for my freedom. Why is he not taking me? He owns me now. And she said, she said, he said to her, he turned and said to her, woman, he says, you do what you want now. You're free. And she says, Really? Am I free to do what I want? She says, yes, you are. Am I free to, do, to think what I want to think? Yes, you are. Are you free? Am I free to go where I want to go? He says, you're free. She says, I choose to go with you. <laughs> when will we understand that fear and condemnation will never motivate a child of God to live for him? We Christians, we really neurotic. We really are sometimes. Some of the things we say, you know, here we are on this earth and we think in order to get to heaven, we've got to go through hell. But you know, in the end, we're going to get heaven. And all those other sinners out there who are having a great time now, don't worry, you're going to roast later. 
We're suffering now. We're going through our hell now, but heaven's coming. And now you're having it all. We have this view of God like God is there to basically any kind of goodness, any kind of joy, any kind of fun in life. God is there to snuff that out. That is not the God of the Bible. And so you are truly free. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, talking to a church that was going back to human performance to get a sense of rightness with God. And he says, stand fast in the freedom by which Christ has set you free and don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. If you want greater freedom in your life, then use the freedom God has given you to live for him. But you don't have to. And whether you do or you don't, it's not going to affect his love for you. Remember, when the prodigal son went far away, the father never stopped loving him. In spite of his actions, God's love, God's covenant is unconditional. And yet the religious thing inside says, but surely there is something I can add. Surely there is something I can do to make God love me more. Surely if I pray and I fast and I read my Bible more and I go to church more and I witness better and the list goes on and on and on that you could write it on a toilet roll. Then God would finally look down on me approval and say, hey, I love you now. The key to being set free is knowing that he does love you now. And he loves you unconditionally. And then you see when your relationship with God is redefined that way, God isn't something that has to be endured. God is something that has to be enjoyed. The Westminster Catechism says, what is the chief end and purpose of man? It says the chief end and purpose of man is to enjoy God and love him forever. What a great mission. And so religion is the enemy of freedom. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What is my message to you today? What's going to cause this revolution of grace to explode in our hearts? Maybe what I'm going to say now, you'll think he doesn't mean it. But I do mean it. I mean what I'm going to say. It's a measured statement. But you've got to understand the context in which I say it. And this is how I'm going to say it. Every one of us need to give up trying to live the Christian life. Every one of us need to give up trying, trying to be obedient, trying to be sanctified, trying to be holy. And we have to die and abandon ourselves in the righteousness of Christ himself we can never be more righteous than we are now because it is a gift of the grace of God. Paul understood this. He said, I am not living this Christian life. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what the problem is? We want to control too much. We want to be perfectionists. We want to somehow get some security from this life, from things in this life. And you'll never get them. The only security is found in the God who can provide that security. No amount of guilt or shame or insecurity will make you better We've been trying to get better for years. And we know it's not working. 
But people have said, if we just try harder, there's no trying. There's only the grace of God that can bring about positive change. If we try in our own strength, you see, this was the problem with the Galatian church. Paul said you were running so well. Who hindered you? Who tried to bring you back into bondage to rules and regulations that you ended up tying yourself up in knots? If this is the truth, if this is what Jesus meant when he said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is our heritage. The great hymn says, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose up and followed thee. And even as Christians, sometimes when we preach the gospel, we use fear as a motivation to get people to turn to God. You know, I am not belittling the seriousness of Judgment Day and the state of those who die without Christ. I would not minimize that. But I know something, that when God reaches out to you, he doesn't reach out to you with that threat of judgment. He reaches out to you with his hands of love. And he says, I took your judgment on the cross 2,000 years ago. On the cross, there was a divine exchange. Jesus takes my sin and he gives me his righteousness. Jesus takes my rejection and he gives me his acceptance. No conditions attached. Jesus takes my sickness and gives me his healing. Jesus dies my death and he gives me his life. He takes my shame and he covers me with his glory. So let's quit acting. Let's be real and recognize that we all struggle at times. We all have times where we don't feel like doing the so-called Christian thing. In those times, don't argue with the accuser. Don't say, yeah, you're right, I'm just such a bad Christian. Say, that's not the basis of how I come before God. I come before God on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice, not my performance. Otherwise, one day you'll be up, and the next day you'll be down. And then we start trying to be so-called spiritual giants, so-called spiritual supermen and superwomen. And you know, sometimes the leaders in the pulpit are the ones who should bear the responsibility because of the lack of vulnerability and the lack of honesty that comes. Or should I tell you about how I became the great spiritual giant that I am today? And if you believe that, there goes one right there. It's a flying pig just flying outside the window right there. Oh, yes. When I wake up in the morning, first thing I do is I jump out of the bed and I worship, yeah? And I give a tongue and Maggie interprets it. And then I run the bath. I get in the bath, the water parts. Sometimes I don't feel like praying. Sometimes I don't feel like preaching. Sometimes I don't feel like coming to church. Sometimes I don't feel like being loving. Sometimes I say things I shouldn't say. Sometimes I'm impatient with people I shouldn't be impatient with. And it's okay. Because it's called being human. Yeah? It's when I admit that, that I can change. But if I'm trying to strive in my own efforts, then it's good night. The game's over. And so the key is to stop fighting. The key is to stop trying. The key is to realize that everything that you can't do, God has done for you. And he calls you to be free. He calls you to live free. And so we transact with God in only one of two ways. You can deal with him on the basis of law and have fun with that one. You won't make it 
You'll become mean, you'll become hard, you'll become religious, you'll become judgmental. You can't do it. Or you can deal with him on the basis of grace. And grace is where his power becomes your power. Grace is where his life becomes your life. I know which one I want to go with. I want to go and live in the grace of God. I am not going to judge myself by how good a Christian I am. You know, sometimes non-Christians are really, really good. That's why we should spend more time with non-Christians. Because they're really, really good at smelling the fakes. And they're the first to come and say, sometimes, you know, call yourself a Christian and you act like that? Yes, that's why I'm a Christian. Because I need the grace of God as much as anybody else. (laughs) Call yourself a Christian and act like that? For crying out loud. Good to see you laughing in church. It's good to be happy. It's good to get rid of the seriousness. I used to go and preach in some churches. I looked out in the congregation. It was like looking at a bunch of bulldogs chewing a wasp. They look like they've been baptised in vinegar. (laughs) Bless me if you can, Pastor. Bless me if you can, guest speaker. God knows I've screwed up big time. My family's here today. They'll tell you that. Speak to my brother. He'll tell you how big time I've screwed up. My mum used to be afraid that I'd call her because she'd have a panic attack at what I'd done next. Oh, and let me tell you something. This wasn't in my non-Christian days. This was as an ordained minister of the gospel with a master's degree in theology. I still screwed up big time. Who gets the glory when we fail and God restores us? God gets the glory, you see. You see, if you're praying like this, God, I promise I'll stop tomorrow. You know, people used to come to me at church sometimes after meetings and we'd had prophetic ministry time. And the favorite one was people would come up to me and say, oh, pastor, you know, again, they think you're some spiritual super saint, you know? Like you hear God every day. You know, like God speaks to you, gives you 10 prophetic words before breakfast. And they said, uh, Pastor Enzo, can, can you give, um, has the Lord got a word for me? And I would always punish these people the same way. I would say, oh, yes, he's got a word for you. And they say, what's that? And I say, hmm, I feel he's saying that you need to stop it. And whoever it was, they always went away convicted like this. <laughs> See, I know something about you. I've been around long enough in many churches to know this. Every one of us has a secret. Every one of us has something that if it were to be displayed on this board right now, you wouldn't be here to see it, and I'm included. Okay? Everyone does. I don't care how spiritual you pretend to be. And maybe you can keep it up for a while, but eventually you're going to crack under the strain of trying to be a Christian. There's no trying to be a Christian. Grace makes you a Christian. It's called being born again. It's called if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away, everything's become new. Don't go to the old things. Live in the power of God. And so grace then is extended to every person. For what hope is there for people on their deathbed? They haven't got time to get up from the deathbed and make amends for a life of sin, for a life of evil. 
But you remember the, the guy next to Jesus on the cross who said, Lord, remember me before you enter your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That is the grace of God. We underestimate the freedom we've been given. We want to dilute it. We want to qualify it. God doesn't dilute it. God doesn't qualify it. He says you're free. Now, what will you do with that freedom you've been given? Like the African slave girl, you want to say to God, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. I'll respond to your love. The love of God. The Bible says God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall never perish, but have everlasting life. Maybe some of you today have been struggling for a while. And you just, you know, you can't seem to get that sense of, of peace. You know, even as Christians, there is a deep insecurity in us. And I believe it goes back to our first ancestors who rebelled against God. And many times we think of that sinful nature expressing itself in the big sins. But actually, I believe it expresses itself most in religion, where we try and cover up, just like Adam tried to cover up in the garden. And we don't realize that God wants to clothe us in his righteousness. He's the one who's provided the sacrifice. And so maybe this message of grace has got so diluted that if it was medicine, it couldn't cure anyone. And if it was poison, it couldn't kill anyone. But we need a radical dose of the grace of God. We need to take our prescription. Aren't you glad that God doesn't just diagnose? He also prescribes. The gospel is bad news before it's good news. We're diagnosed as terminal, but God's prescription is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It was said at the funeral of an atheist. Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and nowhere to go. Let me tell you that if you remove God from the equation of your life, then life ultimately has no meaning. It has no meaning. You're a turnip that springs up and dies and goes back to the ground. That's it. There's no value. People today are trying to deny that there is any such thing as moral absolutes. I was debating a guy about this. He said to me, there's no such thing as absolute right or wrong. I said, are you sure about that? He said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right is only what the majority of society says at any given time, is it? So if I was to take you back to the days of the Third Reich and I was to put a gun to your head and say, now I'm going to kill you because you're a Jew, you're an inferior race, does that make it right? Because the majority say that that's what we believe. Does it make it right? For those who are moral relativists, they would have to conclude yes. Because right is what any, the majority says. And today we're being pressured into a corner to say, to, to abdicate any kind of moral compass, any kind of anchor. God's word is there to show us right from wrong. It's there to show us light from darkness. The laws aren't there to bind us, they're there to set us free. Even if we can't keep them all which we can't. Don't even bother trying. But you know, even if you're not a Christian and you follow the biblical principles, you'll have a much happier life. Did you know that? And if you want to be stupid and just go off and do your own thing and live a life of rebellion and live a life of sin, then you'll face the consequences of that too. You will. 
Because what you sow, you reap. On this life, you will. But I know where I want to go. God's arms are open. His arms, his everlasting love. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. My desire today is that every person under the sound of my voice, you will be completely set free from all Christian religiosity and bondage and condemnation and start enjoying your love relationship with God again. Don't do your prayer time like this. Oh, I've nearly done half an hour. Imagine if you spent time with your wife like that. Okay, love, there's 10 minutes left. Hallelujah, I've done half an hour of prayer. Now the heavens are going to open for me. I found at your worst, that's where God can be at his best. Sometimes your sin is the greatest gift God can give you or allow you to have. Do you know why? Because it teaches you to receive his grace. It was always religious people that Jesus clashed with. But the, the common people, it says, heard him gladly. So let us stand fast in God's freedom and let us not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of forgiveness. Lord, we have nothing here today to boast about. It's only because of Jesus that we can stand, that we can come uh, boldly to the throne of grace. And this morning we receive your grace, not in vain. We ask you to lift every condemnation from off our lives. All insecurity, all guilt, all shame. You called us to love ourselves as we love you. Set us free from that critical voice in our head. It's always self-deprecating us. Help us to lift our hearts and our eyes to you and know that we're free. That our chains have truly fallen off. And we can live with joy, righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Amazing grace, the hymn says. How sweet the sound. Could ask the worship team to come back. Everything is by God's grace, you know. We're saved by grace. We live by grace. We're healed by grace. We're set free by grace. Aren't we just totally abandon ourselves right now into his hands? I felt a bit earlier in the service that the Holy